Please stand, and before we read Judges 5, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. We will read verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Amen. Let's turn now to Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when war, then war was in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit On rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah! Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. 
From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then... Loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for forty years. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a long time since I shared with you what I think is just a great, great classic uh, quotation that comes up from time to time. This one's from Theodore Roosevelt, very quotable man, um, in what has come to be known as his Man in the Arena speech from the year 1910. Here's what he said. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, 
who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That's a man who had a way with words. And who had a great insight into what it's like to truly live. When it comes to the great conflict, the great conflict between light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world that characterizes really all of life between the first and second comings of Christ. Which kind of person do you want to be? Taking that as kind of our framework. Do you want to be the critic who's always pointing out how the strong man stumbles? Or do you want to be the man who is, or the woman, boy or girl, who is actually in the arena? Do you want to be a cold and timid soul who knows neither victory nor defeat? Or do you want to be one who spends himself in a worthy cause? Those are really the kinds of questions that are raised by the song of Deborah and Barak here in Judges chapter 5. And I want to explore this great victory song of Israel with you in three parts tonight, which we're going to call, number one, turning the tide, verses 1 to 11. Number two, entering the arena, verses 12 to 23. And number three, the twist in the plot, verses 24 to 31. So turning the tide, entering the arena, and the twist in the plot. So the, uh, turning the tide. In your Bible, uh, the, the bold heading you might see above chapter 5, uh, which is not inspired, I think you all know that, uh, probably says something like uh, the song of Deborah and Barak, like my Bible does. Um, and that's a, that's a good title for this song. That is indeed what it is. <clears throat> um, as verse 1 tells us, I just want to point out that that means this song was sung by Barak and Deborah, But when you read it closely, you realize this song is not primarily about Deborah and Barak, is it? Although they are key characters in it. Who is this song really about? I might be getting a little predictable here, but these points are worth repeating. This song, like all the history that we've been reading so far, is ultimately about the Lord more than it's about any of the human characters. So the... It's true that the immediate matter for celebration is, verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel. That encompasses all the parts mentioning Deborah and Barak. And that the people offered themselves willingly. That encompasses all the parts about the various tribes and so on. But the true reason to sing about it, the reason for rejoicing and this exuberant song, is found in the third line of verse 2. Bless the Lord. 
The praise, the credit, the glory goes not to those leaders, not to the people, but to God who raised up those leaders, who gave the people the courage to follow them. The kings and princes need to listen to this song because it's to the Lord I will sing, verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, it's the Lord who's addressed directly, as the song makes reference there to Mount Sinai. Uh, It's setting the defeat of Sisera in the context of Mount Sinai all those many years before. You could ask, who has won this victory? Who has won this victory against Sisera? It's the same God who defeated Pharaoh. And And who, after that great exodus, the defeat of Pharaoh and his chariots, came in an overwhelming display of his glory on Mount Sinai. It's that same God who now has bent the forces of nature to his service once again to defeat Sisera and his chariots. So Sisera is falling just like Pharaoh did. But in verse 6, the song kind of takes a step back. Um, it invites us to think what uh, about the way things were before God intervened supernaturally to rescue Israel. Verse 6, the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept to the byways. Villagers ceased. What all of those images make you think of, if that was true of State College, if nobody was driving out on the roads, and if you did travel anywhere, you went by the the side paths and you were avoiding the major highways, well, it would mean that for some reason, the streets of State College were not a safe place to be. Israel was not a safe place to be. It was dominated by fear and insecurity. It was unstable. It was defenseless. And in verse 8, we see that there is a theological reason for this. Why was there this situation where Israel couldn't defend itself, where they'd been disarmed completely under this oppressive domination of the Canaanites, where Israel didn't even have very basic armaments like shields and spears, Well, the ultimate reason was because new gods had been chosen, it says. Israel's vulnerability and weakness was the direct result of their covenantal disloyalty to the Lord. That is the way things were. But it's not the way things stayed. And what made the difference? Well, verse 7 says, until... Until I arose, Deborah says. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. And we can remember from chapter 4, what did Deborah do? Remember that Deborah was a prophetess. That means that what she was doing is she was pointing people to the Lord. She was communicating the word of the Lord to Israel once more. Remember from chapter 4 that the people cried out to the Lord for help? And the very next verse as though in response to that cry, says, now Deborah, a prophetess. Deborah's prophetic judgeship was the first step in the Lord's answer to the people's cry. Well, verse 9 brings in the other major human character here, Barak, into view. What did Deborah do as part of her prophetic work? She communicated a message from the Lord to Barak in particular. She told Barak what the Lord was calling him to do as a military commander. 
And here she celebrates the way that he and Israel's other military leaders alongside him willingly offered themselves in answer to that call. You may remember from last time I tend to disagree with the reading of chapter 4 that pictures Barak as some kind of timid coward who, who wouldn't go out to war unless Deborah was there holding his hand or something like that. This song, I think, is another good reason not to go in that direction in our reading of Barak's character. This song does not criticize Barak for being timid. It only does the opposite. It commends him for willingly offering himself to lead the people into battle. And um, I won't go back over all the other reasons that we talked about last time, but uh, it's a little bit of a debated aspect of the story. Um, You have to understand, though, um, as we move on, that Israel was in a truly desperate position under the regime of King Jabin, the Canaanite king. He oppressed the people of Israel cruelly, chapter 4 said, for 20 years. He vastly overpowered them militarily. He had them completely under his thumb. But now what you see happening is that the tide has turned. There has been a great reversal in the history. Against all odds, Jabin's rule has now been thrown off. His unbeatable army of chariots has been defeated. His dominant general, Sisera, has been destroyed. And so this song is answering the question, what made the difference? What turned the tide? And once again, that God-centered answer to the question that we saw at the beginning of the song is reinforced in verse 11. These are the righteous triumphs of the Lord. It is God who has done this. And secondarily, because the Lord was acting, they are the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. You see how those things are parallel in verse 11. The righteous triumphs of the Lord, that is to say, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. I put this in kind of a New New Testament analogy. Um, I love the way that Romans 8, verse 37 says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through Christ who conquered on our behalf, right? We can't take the credit for the victory of ourselves. We're not more than conquerors because we're such great spiritual warriors. And yet it is truly our victory. We are truly conquerors in Christ. And why is that? Well, it's because we belong, body and soul, to the great victor with a capital V, the Lord Jesus. We're part of his great host of warriors who follow in his train. And we're not fighting in our own strength. When we do fight, it's, it's only on borrowed strength, strength that we've gotten from him. We don't fight for our own glory either. The goal of our fight is to give glory back to him. And yet, because he is the victor, because he is victorious, we are victorious in him. Just like in this war with Sisera, Israel experienced victory because the Lord was victorious on their behalf. And he gave them the privilege. This is the amazing thing. God could have just won the battle, said, okay, here you go, Israel. Just You guys stand aside. I'm going to defeat your enemies. He could have done it that way and kind of put them to shame by doing it that way. Instead, the Lord has been so gracious to give them the privilege, not just of celebrating this victory, but of actually participating in it. And so sharing the triumph with him. Not getting a share of the credit, no. Getting a share of the celebration, yes. 
Although perhaps we should say some of Israel. Some of Israel got to experience all of that joy and celebration. There's a major distinction, though, that's drawn in the next section. So Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, um, Naphtali, verse 18. These, these tribes were fully invested right, in this fight against Sisera. They answered the call. They marched down against the mighty. They rushed into the valley at the heels of Barak. I like that image. But for other tribes, it was quite different. And this is a very striking image of what was happening in Reuben. In Reuben, it says, there were great searchings of heart. They heard the call to go out to war against Sisera, and how did they respond? Well, they, they thought about it. They thought about it. You know, they probably even talked about it. Probably talk, they thought about how great it would be if we were sure that we would win. If only we had the time to spare. If only we had the resources to get involved. Listen, thinking about something, imagining yourself doing something, talking about doing something worthwhile is not the same thing as actually doing it. Thinking requires no sacrifice. Imagining requires no commitment. Talking about something requires no risk. But actually marching down against the mighty, actually rushing into the valley at the heels of a courageous leader, that's different. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landing. See, these tribes measure up in this psalm as those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Whereas the others, Ephraim and Benjamin and so on, they were the ones who were willing to spend themselves in a worthy cause. They were the ones who were actually in the arena. And that's why they get to join in this victory song. In verse 23, the contrast is the most stark of all. Uh, so stark that those who didn't join Israel's army against Sisera actually are subject here to a covenant curse. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. It's not just that town is missing out on the celebration. By opting out of this war, by refusing to risk their lives and commit themselves to fighting side by side with the other tribes at the Lord's call, they have actually failed in their covenant obligations to their Israelite brethren, their covenant obligations to the Lord, and they've earned for themselves not just the absence of blessing, they've earned themselves a curse instead. Good reminder that indecision is a decision. Inaction is an action. And I think it's worth asking ourselves at this point, how invested are we in the conflict that is ongoing, even still today, between the kingdom of God and everything that opposes it? Christ has given to us a mission, not a mission with swords and shields against chariots, and an enemy general. 
But he's given us a mission to carry the good news into a desperately lost and hurting world, to make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded, and always to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. He's told us that we're the light of the world, that we're a city on a hill, and that we're not to take that lamp and put it under a basket, or to put it on a stand so that it can give light to others all around. And he's told us that if they hated him, then they will hate us also. We can expect only to be treated in the same way that he was. And yet he's also told us not to fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. And for all that, nonetheless, how easy it is for us just to sit on the sidelines and hope that someone else will go. Just to see those who have gone out and tried to do something in faithful service to Jesus and just to criticize their efforts without contributing any of our own. Like that quote described, those who point out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better, while we're content not to wade in at all because it's more comfortable, it's less risky, just to keep ourselves to ourselves, not to hazard the ill opinion of others, much less their antagonism. Maybe we'll think about it. Think about what maybe it would be like to do something to advance God's kingdom. We'll imagine the kinds of things that, you know, somebody, somebody ought to do that. Maybe we'll even talk about doing them. What does John tell us? First John, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Lord Jesus is calling us, people of God, to march down against the mighty, to rush into the valley at his heels, as Israel did behind Barak, to offer ourselves willingly. Why? Because he has offered himself willingly. And see, that's the real heart of this. I'm, I'm not up here to, to lay a guilt trip on you about how you really should be just doing more and trying harder to serve Jesus. Because really, more than anything else, what I want you to see, the only way we're going to get the wherewithal to go and serve more energetically and faithfully in his kingdom is to see how Jesus marched down against the mighty. How the Lord Jesus rushed into the valley, the valley of the shadow of death itself, for you, on your behalf, as he offered himself willingly on the cross, giving everything, holding nothing back in self-preservation to win for you a victory that you could not win for yourself any more than Israel could throw off the domination of Jacob. See, that is your leader. That is your leader. Christ has taken the lead in Israel by giving himself willingly in this conflict with sin and Satan. And so now, you see, the call is for you to offer yourself willingly in response to that leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because he needs your help somehow, not because you can add to what he has already done, but because he wants to invite you to share in the joy and the triumph of his victory. And it is his victory. 
But it's also our victory, see, when we offer ourselves willingly as living sacrifices in his service. Forgetful of ourselves. Without letting go of that impulse of self-preservation and saying confidently, Hebrews 13, 6 says, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we do that, we should remember, finally, that God's version of victory often, typically, defies expectations of the way we think victory ought to look, of the way that we would have drawn it up. And that's what we see in the final section of the song in what we're calling the twist in the plot. The song closes, starting with verse 24, uh, by focusing on these two women, greatly contrasting women, uh, Jael on the one hand and Sisera's mother on the other. I don't have a lot to add about Jael in comparison to what we saw last time. Largely, the song just recounts poetically the same thing we saw in narrative, in prose form at the end of chapter 4. Um, I just like to point out that the emphasis, once again, is on her crushing Sisera's head, which is so rich in that resonance across the scriptures of the, with the promise of Genesis 3 of the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. The other thing to note here is just the irony. Who would have expected this to be the way that the great general Sisera would come to the end of his life? Sisera was, Sisera was a soldier. Um, he was under no uh, illusions of what the life of a soldier was all about. He knew it was not unlikely that one day his life would be stripped away from him by violence. But never in his wildest dreams did he suppose, I guarantee you, that it would end like this. That he would meet his death between the feet of a woman lying on the floor of her tent with a belly full of milk and curds and a tent peg through his skull in his sleep. That's not the way Cicero ever pictured himself going out. Nobody would have predicted that way. And yet that is just the Lord's way, isn't it? To bring about his victory in a way that nobody anticipated. Choosing, as we saw last time, the weak to shame the strong. It is the same pattern that we see in the cross. But again, I'm going over old ground from last week. This plot twist idea uh, you see not only in the irony of um, Jael, you also see it in the wishful thinking of Sisera's mother. Back on the home front, as she is waiting for her son to come home. And first, you see her anxiety, this worried mother guessing, actually all too close to the truth at first, as she is concerned, clearly, that something terrible has happened to her son on the battlefield, which it has. But then her friends convince her, oh, no, the reason he hasn't come back yet is, is because he's so busy cleaning up after the victory, going through the spoils of war, dividing up the women and the valuables, so callous, the way they describe what they think of as just normal for Sisera to do with Israel's wives and daughters. 
assuming, obviously, he must have won the battle. But, of course, he hadn't won. And that's the twist in the plot. That this is wishful thinking they're engaging in here. Things couldn't be more different from the way they're describing them. This man will not be coming home. And verse 31 concludes, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this picture of the home front that Sisera thought he would return to that night makes me think about the long Saturday after the crucifixion of Jesus and how smug and self-assured the kingdom of Satan must have felt. Not realizing, perhaps, that in the very act of crushing Jesus on the cross, it was, in fact, the head of the serpent in that very moment that had been dealt a fatal blow. And that, that smugness, that self-assured confidence, is still a characteristic and a major weakness and vulnerability of the forces of darkness in the present day. I think that we Christians can sometimes be intimidated simply by the confidence, the bravado, the brashness and sense of superiority of the powerful, of the intellectual, of the rich and famous and talented opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ as they stand in concert pointing the finger at the church, ridiculing the things of God and taking for granted that they have the upper hand. And what we have to realize, and one of the reasons that passages like this picture of the mother of Sisera are in the Bible for us, is to teach us as the people of God that their confidence is completely misplaced. That while it looks so certain and solid, it is actually ephemeral. It is an illusion. It is a mirage. It is wishful thinking on the part of the world to think that they can stand for a moment against the sovereign majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as God's enemies seem to be congratulating each other and and ridiculing the church, it all rings, it should ring in our ears just as hollow, just as tragically ironic as the misplaced hope of Sisera's mother here. Because what they don't realize, or rather what they don't want to bring themselves to admit, which perhaps they actually know deep down to be true, and are afraid of, but are in denial about it, is that the battle has already been decided the other way. Yes, the lamb was slain, there's no doubt about it. But that very slaying of the lamb was just the beginning of his victory. And that is the reality, brothers and sisters, out of which you and I live right now, and the reality out of which we serve him confident in his conquest, trusting in his triumph, and now giving ourselves without reserve in his service, rather than the alternative, resigning ourselves to be those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. No, 
That's not what Christ has called us to be. He has called us to be actually in the arena, spending ourselves in a worthy cause, but with what confidence we can do so, knowing that the victory has been already won. Let's close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for not only the story, the history of Deborah and Barak, but also for this song, poetic reflection, giving, helping us to imagine that story and its, that history and its significance in a fresh and powerful way. And our God, we ask that you would give us the courage to follow at the heels of the Lord Jesus down into the valley, into the arena, to join in the great conflict with the confidence that he has won the victory ahead of us. And we have the privilege then of sharing in his victory. Lord, forgive us for our reticence, for our instinct just to preserve ourselves and help us to follow him with boldness wherever he leads. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.